Happy Booktober, and welcome to Books, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Uh, this week, we're going to be reviewing, for the first time in booked history, a uh, number one bestseller, while it's a number one New York Times bestseller. Um, we're going to be talking about The Casual Vacancy by J.K. Rowling. A little bit about the author, for those of you who live in a cave and get internet and are able to listen to our podcast. <laughs> Joanne Kathleen Rowling wrote the Harry Potter books and is British. That's all you really need to know. All right. Can I say something about that? Um, the author bio? I'm going to just take a stab. Hold on a second. Can I guess at it? Yeah. You wrote that author bio. <laughs> I did. And here's why. I, I originally pulled her author bio from Amazon and was going to use that. And I copy and pasted it into, you know, our document that we use for our notes. And it was like a full page. And it, it went so far as for like each book that it mentioned of hers, which by the way is only seven books and they're all Harry Potter books. It gave like the date that they were published in the UK. And then also in the, in parentheses afterwards, the American release date, like there was so much information that was just unnecessary. So I tried at first I thought about, I entertained the notion of just cutting down the existing bio. And then when it, when it came down to it, uh, you know, it was going to be listing the seven Harry Potter books and that's about it. So that's how we landed at what we have right now. Did you go ahead and forward her a copy of your uh, your your <laughs> why your author bio probably sucks article to her? No, I'm going to have to. But I have to imagine that it's not even her writing her author bio anymore. I would imagine. And then I was going to make a comment, but you know what? I'm not going to. Let's uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and tell folks what this fine book is about. Rob, would you would you do the honors? Here is the synopsis that we pulled off of Amazon. When Barry Fairbrother dies unexpectedly in his early 40s, the little town of Pagford is left in shock. Pagford is seemingly an English idyll with a cobbled market square and an ancient abbey, but what lies behind the pretty facade is a town at war. Rich at war with poor, teenagers at war with their parents, wives at war with their husbands, teachers at war with their pupils. Pagford is not what it first seems. And the empty seat left by Barry on the town's council soon becomes, soon becomes the catalyst for the biggest war the town has yet seen. Who will triumph in an election fraught with passion, duplicity, and unexpected revelations? Blackly comic, thought-provoking, and constantly surprising, The Casual Vacancy is J.K. Rowling's first novel for adults. I think I'd like to talk a little bit about the synopsis, which is something we kind of find ourselves doing of late. Ever strike you that there was somewhere in the world where rich weren't at war with the poor and teenagers weren't at war with their parents and so on and so forth? Um, yeah, I've heard of other places that have wives at war with their husbands and teacher at war with their pupils, too. Yeah, so and I'm not really sure about that. And the second thing I want to address right off is um, Blackly Comic. Did that ever occur to you that this was kind of like a dark comedy? while you were reading it, because I know that it had been mentioned previously, long before the book came out, that it was going to be an adult novel and that it was going to be kind of like darkly comedic in parts. To be uh, 100% honest, I didn't laugh at all when reading this book. It's a, I don't even know if it's just that, because like I read things that are supposed to be funny and don't laugh. I just didn't see any humor in any of it or anything that was an attempt at. No, it or, seemed like it was very serious and straightforward. There wasn't any kind of comic element to it. Yeah. All right. Um, did you find it constantly surprising? Uh, <laughs> no, I spoiled my review. Yes, in some ways I did find it 
constantly surprising page after page. <laughs> All right. So uh, here's the take on the book. Here's what you need to know. Barry Fairbrother, who is mentioned on nearly every page in this book, uh, drops dead in the first chapter. <laughs> so um, he vacates a seat at the council, which is basically, I believe, even in one point of the book, it says that if it, the town was slightly larger, he would be considered the mayor. But they don't have a mayor because of the size of their town. And uh, there are several people in town who are either interested in taking his position or very interested in the outcome of like the big issue that's at stake um, coming up at like their next council meeting. So depending on who takes his seat could really sway uh, an important decision for the town. That's right. Pretty much from there, what we're seeing is a very extensive list of characters introduced and we're introduced to their personal quirky lives and how their lives are affected by this vacant seat and what their intentions are or their motives for, for getting that seat filled with their specific people that they're backing. Normally at this point, we'd kind of list off a list of characters that are in the book. But as Rob said, it's, it's an extensive list. Um, and, and to be really honest, there's only a few characters you 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 would even care about hearing about. I mean, so here's a problem. She had really good characters. The problem was the story just wasn't exciting enough. And maybe she spread out over so many characters that you couldn't you know, grow attached enough to any of them to really care about what happened to them. Maybe because there were so many, because they were well-written characters, right? Do you agree? Uh, yeah. I mean, the characters were definitely developed properly and they were unique enough. I mean, you could definitely feel a difference between all of them. So um, she she developed good characters and she developed them properly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there was just way too many of them. All right. So one of my biggest issues with the book, and I'm saying it now instead of reserving it for later because I think it, it kind of touches on, on what we we're just talking about, is that um, in the synopsis, it says what lies behind the pretty facade is a town at war, rich at war with poor. That's the first in the list of different wars. And really, that's the big one. That's the, the biggest, most powerful war. And it gets the most coverage. My issue is, of the people in the book, of the characters, most of the ones that we see are the rich ones. It's not very evenly divided between the rich and the poor. And so a majority of what we read is from the perspective of the rich people who are trying to make decisions for the poor people that don't necessarily work out very well for the poor people. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's very tough to like or get into these characters because it's very obvious that these are just a bunch of rich assholes who are trying to screw over some poor people. Do you usually vote Democratic in the uh, in the presidential elections? Is that I'm... I, I, no. <laughs> you refuse to comment? I'm not going to, yeah. <laughs> right, no. I'm not bringing my personal politics into this. Um, yeah, you're right. The only interesting people, um, save one probably, are, are the poor folk. And, and in most cases, the younger folk, too. Um, I kind of found myself there are uh, a number of teenagers that uh, that are involved in the story, um, two of them being children of people who are uh, who want to become uh, Barry Fair brothers replacement on the council seat. Um, there's a young lady named Crystal who's from uh, the wrong side of the tracks. Uh, he, a 
you know, addict slash prostitute mother or younger brother who's not really being cared for properly. It was some of the most interesting people. I thought with the exception of one woman named Samantha who was married to a rich guy but had just about had enough of him and his family. I thought she was kind of an intriguing character through some parts of the book. Yeah, but otherwise, and and you know what? I was thinking of this right now while we were talking about, while you were talking about Barry, the the guy that dies in the beginning of the book and um, it's emphasized, like Olivia said, his name, you can't go a page without reading his name and it's emphasized throughout the whole thing that Barry was very much for making the decision that's going to help these poor people. Um, so it's even more of a sharp contrast when you're reading over and over about all these rich people trying to make that, to stop that from happening. And it just makes you dislike these characters even more. At least it made me dislike them even more. Yeah. And, and Barry, um, kind of go a little bit back to what you said. Barry didn't come from money. Barry grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, but had been taken into this town and went to the school there and the church there and, you know, had bettered his life and loved the town that gave him so much that, you know, he chose to, uh, you know, become a, an important politician in their small town. So, I mean, it's a little bit more of what you were talking about because the only guy there that's really supporting it is, you know, a guy who came from the, you know, from the wrong side of the tracks, basically. Yep. So, really, this uh, this um, election to fill his vacant seat is what drives the 500-plus page story. Like, that's what we're looking at. The whole way through, it's the build up to it's like it's the progression from people deciding they want to um, to to actually throwing their their hats in the ring to campaigning to the actual inevitable election and the outcome. So that's pretty much the whole story. Yeah. Um, God, you know, <laughs> politics bores me in general. OK, so big national politics bores me. You cannot imagine Maybe you can because you read it. I don't think listeners can imagine how boring it is to read about really, really small town politics. Yeah, and in a <laughs> and in like what I consider to be in my mind at least like the most stereotypical, like small little British town where things like manners and 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 uh, conventions and and the way that you're expected to do things matters so much to people. It's just endlessly boring crazy 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 boring and that's mixed in with uh you know when you said stereotypical the first thing that came to mind is the uh the cattiness and the gossip amongst the the women of the town that's yeah. that's you know a good portion of the book is spent with with hating thy neighbor but you know pretending to like them to their face kind of you know um, which i realize goes on in, in you know in, in real life all the time so i'm not gonna say this is a fictional downfall of hers but it was very stereotypical of what you expect of the stuffiness that that this Pagford town kind of uh, kind of brings to the page. Yep. All right. So I don't even want to say it's a saving grace, but the the only the only thing that maintains the story and the real besides Barry's death, the only other interesting thing that happens that um, you know fuels the storyline on is that uh, it's all back to the teenagers for Miss Rowling. The teenagers uh, do something very mischievous, which causes people to point fingers at other people and actually make this election a little more. I don't want to say interesting because it wasn't more interesting. How do, how how would we say this? I, I mean, you probably have to say less boring. Yeah, a little less boring, but um, <laughs> and it's interesting because the catalyst was a bunch of Harry Potter age kids, right? Am I right? I don't know a lot about yeah. Harry Potter, but they, they did yeah. drive the story. <laughs> they drove the entire conflict of the book, like. 
without the the thing that these these kids get up to, there's no forward motion with any type of conflict. So there's nothing really except for like watching. You know, it would be like watching a town hall meeting that you know the that your you know that your town had videotaped and put on like public access or something. Well, and for us, it's not even a town you live in. You might care on what happens in your town a little bit or have some interest <laughs> if there's going to be like a new fast food restaurant or a Walmart going up. But yeah, um, so we're being purposely vague because if anybody does want to go ahead and knock out this, you know, really quick 502 page book, <laughs> we wouldn't want to spoil anything for them. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the good. What's the good? Do you have any good? I have some good. Go first. All right. Here's the one thing. Now, Rob has been exposed to this is the eighth J.K. Rowling book he's read. It's the first one I've read. Um, so I really didn't know what to expect. Um, from thinking Harry Potter, she wrote it for children. I wasn't assuming that she was, you know, a poor writer. But I really thought that, it, you know, in some ways, like my expectation was that it wouldn't be terribly insightful or, you know, and like so these are just kind of my own. I'm going to call them prejudices, but this is someone who's worldwide known for, you know, for writing books you read with your children or to your children. So um, her insight into people is is just excellent. I mean, this woman can take one sentence and kind of sum up, uh, you know, the person she's describing. And she does it with such precision and flair that I was super, super impressed with her writing style. Mind you, let's not get that confused with her storytelling ability, because that leaves quite a bit to be desired yeah i'll back you up on that she is not lacking in skill uh as far as you know writing a a story i mean she gets all the elements right she she develops very unique characters uh that are very that are believable and um well written uh and authentic and she crafts a good story i mean it's very it's definitely complex and when you're juggling I want to say close to 20 probably, uh, you know, main characters in a book. That's got to be really difficult to keep mapped out in your brain or however she's doing it. But um, so the writing skill is definitely there. She's got the chops. Uh, I think that what I consider to be the critical flaw in this book is that she wrote from such an unsympathetic perspective for the majority of the book that it was just work to get through it. Yeah, it's just very tedious. So I was going to save this for my summation because I, I've been thinking of this all week. It's like she wrote the book that she thinks adults would read, and apparently she just feels that adult fiction must be incredibly bland and boring. Hmm. Interesting. That's all. It's like if I, you know, like I haven't read a lot of like outer space science fiction books, right? But if I sat down to write one, I think, all right, well, he's got to be like a Martian. And like a ray gun, probably a couple <laughs> of spaceships. Well, do you know what I mean? And it's right. almost like she sat down and said, well, I got to write for a book for adults. So here's what there's got to be. There's got to be these bland, gossipy people. And what's another adult thing that people do? Oh, yeah, politics. A lot of adults are in politics. So we'll make it about politics. And it's like I got the feeling that this is what she thinks adults read. I will say, though, that when she wrote the parts she wrote about the poor people, uh, there was an area of kind of in between two towns called the fields and it's basically where poor people live and it's government subsidized and that's kind of just the the skid row kind of area in this town she, i i thought that she wrote that in a very 
authentic, cr- almost crimey kind of way. Like she pulled that off, I think, pretty well. I don't know if that felt as stereotypical as the Richie stuff she wrote. Right. Or if, we're, or if we just, to us, that doesn't seem stereotypical. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like if that seems more normal and realistic to us <laughs> than, the, than the other side. Not that either one of us lives in a, you know, like crimey fields type area. But I don't know if that's our expectations that change there. And all of it was very realistic, or was it just all really stereotypical? And I don't know. I, I just don't have an answer for that. Oh, no, but, I mean, you would think with the quantity of crime-slash-noir fiction that we read, mm-hmm. that would be the thing that we'd be more critical of because we read so much more of that, but it was the part that I enjoyed the most of the whole book. Yeah, well, it just speaks volumes to our taste. But yeah. <laughs> the heroin junkies are what we really got behind in this book. Yeah, so. it was, nothing got me until there was some prostitution or... Mm-hmm. or uh, uh, someone shooting up. Yeah. You know, I am going to read one quote just because I was thumbing through here looking, getting ready for him. But I think this is a, a perfect example of um, of what Rob was saying and why we're kind of endeared a little bit, a little bit, mind you, to the parts that um, that involve some of the you know underprivileged people. And uh, this is a convert or this is a, a scene where um, there's a social worker um, who may or may not be taking. So there's a girl, Crystal, I mentioned earlier. She's 16-ish, and she's kind of a troublemaker. Her mother's a, a drug addict, and she has a, a younger brother who's, I don't know, do you remember, Rob, three or four? He's very young. Three. Yeah, so they're very concerned that the the mother has relapsed several times. At any rate, so the, the caseworker is at the house, and this is um, uh, Crystal's thought here. Kay is the counselor. Kay had a thick open folder on her lap. Crystal hated folders. All that, all the stuff they wrote about you and kept and used against you afterwards. Like that yeah. one sentence to me, and at this point we'd already known Crystal, but I mean it opens up like this whole level of what her life has been that every time, you know, someone's there with a folder, it's it's a list of wrongdoings that that she's done or her mother's done and, you know, just her, her you know, kind of hatred for folders I think is such a precise way to explain who she is as a character that's what i meant yeah. she's some very very powerful and good solid insight the problem is that the whole story around it just wasn't very interesting yeah all right so one of the things that bothered me about the book and usually i would praise this but it was just what i'm what i'm getting at is she used unnecessarily big words now you know if you use an unnecessarily big word once or twice that's fine the way i look at it is if you're going to use a big word um, you should do it in a way that it helps you to explain a lot by just using that one word instead of causing much more work for the reader without having any kind of payoff, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So here's some of the words that she used in the book. Uh, I'm not going to, well, I guess I could use some of them in the context of what she said, but she used the word obstreperous uh, at one point, which uh, if you boil it down to, what it really means, it means pretty much uh, unruly, I guess. So unnecessarily large word. And uh, they used it in the fa- you know the faction on the board who was kind of pro-poor uh, people was called the obstreperous faction, I believe. So they could have just called them like the wild bunch or something like that, and it would have gotten out. You know what I'm saying? It would have just <laughs> yeah. Atavistic is a word that was used at one point. Which the only other time anybody's used the word atavistic in a book that I've read was Hunter S. Thompson. And I was like, yeah, that's awesome because he used an awesome word. But here, it just didn't work very well. Atavistic basically means like you're, you're acting in a way that like you did in the past, I guess. Or like, you know, you're devolved in a way. 
little bit. It didn't help. It didn't help anybody, I'm sure. This next one, probably my fam favorite one. Uh, I, I'm not even going to be able to say it properly, I don't think. Um, Pulsianimus? Is that Pulsianimus? Yeah. That, sure. That's okay. that. Pulsianimus. I'm going to actually look at the sentence that this came from. Finally, it would afford her an, another opportunity to sharpen her claws on Gavin for being pulsianimous and indecisive. Uh, pulsianimous basically means cowardly, so cowardly would have worked way, way better in that situation. Uh, pedantic, struggling to articulate articulate it for his pedantic legal mind, which essentially, like, uh, pedantic, without getting too deep into the explanation, means you're kind of OCD about some shit. Easy one right there. This one I almost jumped over uh, when I was making my list. but And I had to look up the pronunciation of it. It's frisson, which means like a thrill that you get. And, and the sentence is, sometimes a little frisson would run through her while she was hoovering, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, a little thrill, something. She could have said something much more simple. And then, all right, I'm going to go one more, and then I'll take a breath. Um there's a, uh, one of the teenagers is, her name is Gaia. And she's this very pretty daughter of Kay, the social worker that Livius mentioned earlier. And one of the other teenagers, Andrew is kind of in love with her, like in a way where <laughs> kind of he's fully, yeah, he's obsessed with her basically. And uh, at one point there's a line that goes, the chimeric Gaia who filled his fantasies was a sexually inventive and adventurous, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, in the context of that sentence, what she meant was essentially that Gaia was um, like an unattainable goal. Uh, like she was uh, this mythical creature that, you know, didn't actually exist, that type of thing. So I like the use of it, but it took me, me so long to figure out what she meant by it that it really didn't help me with the story at all. So it's those types of things that really bother me. One of the notes I had in here, I'd started making notes about different pages. And I just want to back to what you said about her being a little in love with. This kind of struck me as odd. <laughs> and yes, I understand that J.K. Rowling is a woman and perhaps doesn't have a really solid uh, working <laughs> knowledge of the male anatomy. But um, tw page 28 in the book, Andrew, who's in love with Gaia, is, is thinking about her and he's very excited because they're pulling up to, you know, to the bus stop where she would get on and there's like an empty seat in front of him. He's doing what, you know, the 16 year old kid would do when he's kind of got the hots for a girl. But I'm going to read you this last passage. Uh, it says, uh, sight of her running had been enough to occupy his thoughts for hours, but the driver hauled at the big wheel and the bus set off again. Andrew returned to his contemplation of the dirty window with an ache in his heart and in his balls. Wow. Yeah. She doesn't know how balls work. <laughs> Apparently, and that's a saying, and I understand that there's a, there's a, you know, there's a gap there perhaps in her knowledge of the male anatomy and that's fine. But yeah, it just, I don't know, it just struck me as, as a, you know, it struck me as odd as all the sex talk amongst the teenagers seemed a little wrong until they addressed in one portion of the book that apparently 16 is the age of consent in, um, in the area in Pagford that they live in. So I don't know if that's all of England or a local, you know. But that kind right. of explain. It was like her own way of explaining her way out of like some of the creepy sex stuff that that was, and not creepy, creepy because they're kids, you know, sex stuff. Not that the actual context of any of it was really bizarre or anything, but it almost felt like she was explaining her way out of why the teenagers are, are you know, involved in all kinds of sexual stuff throughout the book. You know what threw me off a little bit too? 
mm. the uh, description of how people felt when they first started smoking marijuana. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like, and now this is not me being an expert of how it feels to get high, mm-hmm. but like the moment they got done with their first, like, you know, toke or whatever, <laughs> yeah. they're immediately kind of like feeling woozy and shit. And I'm like, I don't know if that's really how it works. Yeah. I thought there was like a time period where it took to set in, you know? Mm-hmm. So that I would have to agree. So what we'll need is if we have any <laughs> marijuana experts out yeah. there, go ahead and, and hit us up on Facebook or on the website and let us know if it really works like that. We, we do know some people in California who may have medical reasons for, for smoking marijuana. So this is true. Yeah. <laughs> um, additionally, I'd like any of our listeners from England to uh, just drop us a note and let us know if you guys ever plan on getting caller ID. Yeah. So no to explain, in calling. case you're not in <laughs> case you're not clear, about 30 years ago <laughs> in the United States, we got this invention. It's called caller ID and 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 call waiting. So what happens? And I guess I should be more. My my issue is more with the call waiting. I guess if you're on the phone with somebody and someone else calls, there's a tone to alert you that someone else is calling, so you can choose to take that call or not take that call. And then, of course, you can see that on your caller ID and see who it is and make that decision. Every phone in Pagford, every time someone wanted to make a phone call, was apparently engaged. And I do this with the, with the rabbit ears, engaged, because I'm guessing that means busy. So I just want to know if anybody there can tell me if your, your local telephone <laughs> provider has told you it's coming or not. But i got to tell you, it's pretty goddamn cool. Yeah, let's... Um... I mean, we might have to send the Peace Corps over there or something to help them build up their phone infrastructure. Were there not at least five instances of people calling other people and their phone was engaged? The lines were always engaged. Anytime <laughs> someone's calling about something, the line's engaged. I know. And, of course, none of those people have a cell phone that you would just call then because it's always the home phone they were calling. Hey, can I ask you something? Sure. When's the last time you called anybody and the line was engaged? Uh, it was probably 1987. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, seriously, caller ID, I was... I was like a kid. I was like 14. It was like the greatest invention ever. Your mom no yeah. longer told you couldn't use the phone because she might be getting a phone call from somewhere. I was a teenager. It was great. Can I talk a little bit more about some things uh, that threw me off in the book? Sure. All right. Do you know what kitchen roll is? I, I did guess at what that was. And apparently, according to your research notes, I, that was my guess was correct. It's this very emotional moment in the book and someone's crying and then the other person gives them kitchen roll. And I'm like, is that food? <laughs> I mean, like, maybe that's how people comfort each other over there. Apparently, kitchen roll is paper towels. Uh, did you know before reading the book what a rabbit warren was? Or the I'm going to tell you, I didn't, I didn't look that up or your other one. So, no, I had no idea. Yeah. At one point, uh, a building, I think, was described as being a rabbit warren. And I was like, I'm not letting this one go. I got to look this up. And uh, the only thing I can imagine is that, you know, the building was very winding Windy. and, yeah. and having winding uh, like uh, hallways and stuff. Just kind of an extensive series of, I don't know, but anyway, that threw me off. And then the last one is probably the best. Gormless? That's how I'd say it. Any idea? Nope. Foolish. I had to look that one up too. I'm like, Gormless? Because, all right, hang on, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to the, the source. J.K. Rowling's brain? Howard listened to the muffled sounds of Andrew opening the heavy doors and hoped that the boy would not prove gormless or need a lot of direction. Foolish. Yeah. Thanks, JK. Yeah. Um, 
So. Oh, and then corpsed, corpse, corpses, corpsed, corpsed. I think Did you we... might have got an autocorrected on that. That's the one. And the more that I ta- I thought about this, the more I feel like we talked to we talked about someone corpsing something in a different episode. I have no recollection of any of our episodes anymore, sir. Yeah, it's true. Anyway, so I think that means like coughed because it was in reference to someone doing something like smoking a cigarette or something like that, but they corpsed something. I don't know. That one threw me off and I can't find the highlight where I highlighted it. So I'm going to just give up. Is there anything else we really need to say about this book? I was trying to look for a good example um, of, of Crystal or her mother, Terry speaking which was always fun because you couldn't help but like actually try to read it under your breath. They apparently speak um, like a a very slangy version of British. Um, And I'm thumbing through here. And of course I can't find one chapter that they're in, but uh, that was the only fun part of the book is I'd kind of like under my breath, if there was no one around, like read those sentences out loud and try to verbalize (laughs) what they're saying to hear what it sounded like. Oh yeah. When the, like, um, like when uh, Crystal and her mom are talking, that guy Abo is also there. Yes, oh, exactly. Man, priceless. Yeah, it's like a whole nother language. There's a lot of in it and your instead of you, and I just can't find yeah. a good. Uh, I can't find a good example, of course. Now, so I feel like I made it up in my head. No, no, no. That's probably some of the best stuff in the book. All right, here, here's one thing that I thought was pretty funny, and I highlighted it just because it made me laugh. Um, at one point, Crystal, they were talking about Crystal and her life and something, and. And there's a sentence that said someone at school had told her, hey, Crystal, your sister's up the duff, which is apparently a way of saying pregnant. <laughs> I didn't even think about that when I read. That's horrible. Oh, your sister's up the duff. <laughs> we have like three people in, you know, England and the surrounding, you know, the UK kind of area mm-hmm. who probably will listen to this. And they're just going to be laughing at our stupid, like, American criticisms. Yeah. You ain't got brothers and sisters. She asked Avia and then he <laughs> said something else and she, I don't I can't read this next one because it's a very spoilerly line, but yeah, there's a lot of Aria and Avia and in it, it add to, it, it add to Appen. <laughs> there's also no H's in that, in the fields there. They don't use the letter H. And like combining like, do you like dia, do you want to like that yeah. type of thing? Good stuff. Good stuff. Anyway, so that was fun. I, if I if I had to speak British, that's how. Here we go. It's I rode for him, didn't I? And there's like four apostrophes in this sentence. This short, like six word phrase. There's just apostrophes everywhere. So anyway, so that was kind of fun. It was uh, J.K. trying to do her lower class speak. All right, so here's what we could do though. I say we get Craig Walwick on the show and we interrogate him about caller ID. The pot, the pot in Great Britain. Yeah, the weed that instantly kicks in. Yes, exactly, (laughs) because that's apparently better than what's available in the United States, according to Rob. Um, And about this, this, this other language that that they speak there. But it's not that weird, like Cockney rhyming thing that they do. Like you know about the the rhyming, like a British rapper. No, no, there's that whole like kind of like sub language where uh, people say uh, um, like one word. And it rhymes with the thing they're actually trying to say. You know what I'm talking about? No. Oh, Pig Latin? No. All right. We're going to take a break. All right. So we had to take a little break to, to go do some web searching for Cockney Rhyming Slang so we could talk about it a little bit. And we found a website, cockneyrhymingslang.co.uk. Cannot 
testify to the authenticity of of any of this because we are not uh, British. But there's some really funny stuff in here. So what what Rob was saying is, and I'm going to give you an example here, but um, basically uh, they substitute one word for another word, and the word can either rhyme or be another word that goes with the word that rhymes with the original word that you're going to say. So the word we looked up that Rob found very quickly for some praise reason is the word trouble. So (laughs) apparently to say trouble in Cockney rhyming slang, the word is Barney rubble, which rhymes with trouble and their, uh, their example, because they put little sense examples, which is good right below. It says got into a right Barney last night. So that doesn't actually rhyme with trouble, but rubble rhymes with trouble. How do you, so my only thought is you'd have to carry around a dictionary to understand, <laughs> right? Like, uh, yeah. Oh, here's a beautiful one. You ready for it? Mm-hmm. Turk, as in like a person from Turkey. I'm assuming a Turkish mm-hmm. person is Captain Kirk. <laughs> and the and the example, the, the sentence that they put below it is a lot of captains around this area. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh my god. Let's not give J.K. Rowling any ideas for her next book where it'll be written 100% in Cockney rhyming slang. <sighs> Truth is Babe Ruth. Ain't that the babe is the, the sentence that they give. Yeah. Bacardi Breezer for Freezer. I'll just <laughs> stick it in the Bacardi. This doesn't even make any sense. No, it doesn't. Uh, table is Aunt Mabel, so put the fruit on the Aunt Mabel. Why would that? That's terrible too, because I think the whole idea is that like it's supposed to make talking about things either simpler or less like easy to understand for other people. I don't know. Like it's so just, like code. Yeah. So, but here's where the confusion comes in. For the word legs, they've substituted bacon and eggs. So the sentence is: Look at the bacon and eggs on honor. I, I was gonna say on her, but there are no <laughs> H's. There are no H's in Great Britain, apparently. Unless you're saying herbs. Yeah, a lot of apostrophes, no H's. So at any rate, now seriously, if I said look at the bacon and eggs on her, what would that what would that mean to you? <laughs> like probably, well, eggs are kind of boob shaped, right? And bacon. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. All right. At any rate, <laughs> I'm done with Cockney slang. I'm done with the British. All right. Here, laugh is Steffi Graf, <sighs> the tennis player. <laughs> He's Avenus Effie Graf, right? <laughs> this is terrible. I think this is like a joke website for like uh, non-British people to go to to think that they know what they're talking about. So we um, just sound like idiots on a podcast? So, yeah, we sound like idiots on a podcast. Oh, that's me lemon down the ain't it a treat? <laughs> uh, line of cocaine is Patsy Klein. I'll sort out a few Patsy's, mate. <laughs> God, I could do this all day. Let's do the... <laughs> Let's do the podcast where it's just Americans laughing at Cockney rhyming slang. Well, okay, so if you look uh, <laughs> up the word sauce, which apparently rhymes with Air Force, I'm not really sure about that. But even the, they even spell want with an apostrophe. Do you want any Air Force on your chips, love? W-A-N apostrophe T. How does that even work? I don't know. I don't know. She's a right air gunner. Well, they rhymed scarf with center half. I don't even know what center half means. <laughs> it's pro- yeah, never mind. Because if you look that up, we'll wind up on a whole another 20 minute. Yeah. Wow. All right. Explain I'm this one to me. Slang for P. For score, it says Jude Law. <laughs> <laughs> that, 
that doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, please edit out at least a little bit of this. No, this is all saying this is going. Oh, God damn it. All right, want to get back on? Yeah, I closed closed it before I started reading in a horrible accent, (laughs) things that didn't make any sense to anybody at all. All All right, right. let's let's wrap (laughs) this up. I I think we're done. You want to do some quotes? Do you have quotes? I have some quotes. I've got just a couple. Um, There are some pretty excellent things that she wrote in here. It's very, very quotable in certain points, so I'm going to throw out a few of those. The first one I'm going to do, I think, actually, uh, is while is one of the very few pages where Barry is still alive. They're driving to a golf course, uh, him and his wife, to have dinner. The golf club lay a mere four minutes away from the square, a little beyond the point where the town petered out in a final wheeze of old cottages. That was cute. Well, there you go. She writes cute. All right. Here's a... <laughs> this is just after Barry dies. I'm just going, you know, in order, I guess. Mm-hmm. Stone dead, said Howard, as though there were degrees of deadness, and the kind that Barry Fairbrother had contracted was particularly sordid. I did like that one a whole lot, too. So that was uh, that was very good. Um, I'm going to move on to uh, much later in the book. Well, I guess not much later. Halfway through the book. And uh, again, we're back with, uh, with uh, Crystal's family, and it's Terry that we're really uh, talking about here. So... Um, not to give too much away, but just to set this up, Terry has two sisters. Um, one of them who is uh, uh, just like her, you know, lives down the street from her, lives in the fields, uh, you know, has a, a boyfriend who's a drug. At any rate, so someone who's living very much her life just like Terry is. And she also has um, another sister, another sister named Danielle. So it's Danielle and Cheryl are the sisters. Sorry, I'm a little confused there. Um, and she's kind of talking about the difference between the two sisters and more about Danielle. She said, but Danielle had weapons Cheryl did not, money and her own home, and a landline. She knew official people and how to talk to them. She was the kind that had spare keys and mysterious bits of paperwork. Yep, yeah. Like, I thought that was just a very, very powerful, you know, statement to make about, you know, what, you know, what Terry considers to be affluence someone who has an extra set of keys and paperwork because Terry has none. Yeah. I got another quote um, that has to do with Crystal and her family. doesn't really need any setup. People in Crystal's mother's circle died prematurely with such frequency that they might have been involved in some secret war of which the rest of the world knew nothing. That's just exactly what Livius was talking about before, how she can sum up such like a vivid idea in so few words. Yeah, I don't know that I have any other quotes. And I want to say it's like everything we're saying is, of course, from what we felt were the most interesting parts of the book. But um, it's not necessarily quotes, but there's a early on, she does this great job with insight into people. And there's um, Howard and his wife are rushing to the hospital after um, they find out Barry died. And, you know, the insight is from Howard's wife who says that, you know, he, he was rushing even even though, you know, Barry was already dead as if he could hurry and do something, you know, for a man who had already died or something along those lines. And like I said, I mean, it wasn't so much quote worthy reading the sentence, but like I said, the thought behind is that's what people do. And she was just very insightful into doing something that we all do that makes very little sense in retrospect. So, yeah, for sure. She did. Yeah. Those types of things she does very, very well. And it's very, it's exemplary of what I like her for. That makes sense. Mm hmm. I got one uh, really quick quote that I like just for the way that it sounds. And uh, 
Crystal's slow passage up the school had resembled the passage of a goat through the body of a boa constrictor, being highly visible and uncomfortable for both parties concerned. All right, so I have a couple more, but I'm just going to do one. I'm just going to end it off on this one. And to give you a little background, there's a character named Sukvinder, who's a, a daughter of, um, I think the woman's name is Paraminder, right? Mm-hmm. And Paraminder's a doctor in town who is also on this council, and Sukvinder is the daughter who is the underachiever who just, you know, really doesn't fit in with the rest of her family. And she's kind of verbally abused and she's got very low self-esteem, doesn't think much of herself. And she's often picked on in school, uh, especially by one of the other teenagers that's prominent in the book named Fats. And um, this is a scene where she's standing around with uh, some other people and Fats is walking towards that group. And this is her, you know, JK's description of how uh, Sukvinder kind of like reacts or not not reacts, but you'll you'll get it. Uh, She would have known his shape and his walk anywhere. The way something primal inside you helps you recognize a spider moving across a shadowy floor. That was great, great stuff. That'll do it for me for quotes. It's such a shame that that (laughs) she has that good of stuff and she wastes it in such a crappy, boring story. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I have to say about writing style or whatever is um, very consistently through the first three quarters of the book, um, each chapter is told very, even though it's, you know, omnipotent narrator, it's told very narrowly, narrowly through the eyes of one character. And then for some reason, part four of the book, which I says a good three quarters of the way through, she just starts to include multiple points of view in chapters for no really good reason, I thought, which was just a very odd choice. And in some cases, even seemed like amateurish. I don't know. It just rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, we've talked about abrupt changes like that uh, to the narrative style, I guess, uh, with other books. And I think for me personally, this didn't hit me as being as severe as some of the other books, but... um could be just because I was just really pushing to get done with the book because it was take, taking forever. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't terribly jarring. I mean, when it first happened, I was a little confused because I had realized that I kind of, I don't know, glazed over a name. I was reading a point of view of one character, and then I'm thinking, what the hell are they talking about? And it had just switched, like, mid-page mm-hmm. to talk about somebody else's point of view, so it caused some confusion. But no, I mean, it wasn't terribly disruptive. It just seemed like a very odd choice. So There you have it. All right, let's do wrap-up and maybe give it some stars. You go first. All right. Um, having come from uh, Harry Potter, I did my best to, to keep from having any preconceived notions about the book. I didn't, I didn't you know, set my expectations too high because it's definitely a change of the type of book she writes, so I didn't want to give her too much and then be disappointed by, by a book. That being said, I am kind of disappointed by the book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I really enjoy the talent that J.K. Rowling has, and um, it's evident in this book. We had some really good quotes. We had some nice things to say about um, her, how she develops characters and the story and all that stuff, but I think she just made some poor choices with the way that the story was told because the big story, the story that matters is about these poor people who are, you know, facing adversity and trying to, against pretty tough odds, have a better life for themselves. And 
Um, we didn't see enough of that, and we didn't see it from the right perspective. Um, if she was trying to go for uh, some sort of bigger lesson about the necessity for, for rich people to be more giving and caring and community-focused, it didn't really come off to me. It, you know, if, if she was just trying to force the perspective of how bad it could be, it didn't work. It was just boring and and the parts that I really enjoyed I didn't get enough of. So I like her and I like what she was trying to do. I just think she failed to do it. And so uh this book for me is going to be a two-star book. I agree pretty much with everything that Rob said. Um some of the issues I had was that although the characters were developed in their own way, I don't think very many of them went on any kind of journey. I did have expectations that some of these characters would get what they have coming to them, good and bad, in the end, as a transition for a book, you know, normally is. Um, that really only happened with one or two people, and the rest of them seemed kind of just very unaffected by the circumstances of the book. Uh, it often bothers me, and I don't want to say bothered, I don't want to say it's, it's a terrible thing, but there was no main character in this book. The main character maybe was Barry Fair, Fairbrother, who died in the first chapter. Um, so there was there was just there was no protagonist. There was just a, a lot of different people. And, you know, some might argue, oh, well, maybe the main character is the town or the town council or something. It was just very muddy and, and, and just not fun and, and hard to follow. Too many characters to the point where I had to read on after reading someone's name to kind of remember who they were. Not because I have a terrible memory for these things in books, just because nobody was really stand out of most of the characters. So. Having never read J.K. Rowling before, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to pick up another one of her books. Um, but I will say this, um, the woman can can write, and as was evidenced by some of the quotes that Rob did and, and some of the things that I couldn't really put into a quote, but there were you know longer passages that really expressed a feeling or, or an attitude that I thought were really terrific. She just managed to, to slap those into a book that was really terribly, terribly, horribly boring. Um, uh, I don't have anything good to say about the story, and that's unfortunate. But I will, because of the uh, because of the the little gems of writing that were in there, I'm going to go with Rob and give it two stars. Can I ask you a follow up question? Sure. Now, so far in the hundred and what is this ten? Is this the hundred tenth episode? I believe so. Uh, episodes of of the podcast the 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 gold standard for boring has been the Pale King by David Foster Wallace, right? Yes, or possibly one Q eighty four, but I think David Foster Wallace Pale King still still stands above it, right? Yeah, one Q eighty four wasn't as boring as as the Pale King. I mean, there was an actual story there that you were interested in. He just failed to deliver on any points of the story. Are you asking me if this was more boring than the Pale King? <laughs> I don't know um, how you saw the question coming. Yeah, I, let's say they were probably equally boring, but in a different way. The, the one thing that I think Rowling actually gave us was a coherent story. That you could follow, yeah. you know, I mean, it, it you know, it, it was a story and I just didn't think the Pale King was the Pale King was like, you know, lumping a bunch of stuff together is what that felt like. So, yes, equally as boring, but in a different kind of way, a new kind of boring, you know, it's not, it's <laughs> the whole thing. This is OK. So it, it was it's like a like listening to a gossipy old aunt kind of boring, you know, like in again, it's not even people, you know. So it's like listening to, you know, an older woman talk about the neighbors and you don't yeah. know either one of them. So you don't care. You know, it's mm -hmm. just I don't know. It was unfortunate. 
It was an unfortunate vacancy. <laughs> oh, that was good. Ugh, All right. Uh, what else we got? Um, well, we already kind of made the announcement, but I guess we could let Skip Papersley tell people what the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list is this week. This is Book News. I'm Skip Papersley. This week in Book News, The Silent History is a new kind of ebook. According to the author, Kevin Moffat, Silent History is part serialized novel and part treasure hunt. With each chapter, there are additional narratives to support the fiction and, best of all, field reports. A treasure hunting system that activates your iPhone or iPad when you are near something relevant to the book. So far, spots have been found in LA, New York, and Antarctica, meaning that finishing this book requires a plane ticket to all these places, making it the most expensive ebook to date. In other news, rocker Neil Young's biography, Waging Heavy Peace, is doing quite well. Mr. Young himself was surprised to hear this, stating, I want to live, I want to give, I'm a miner for a heart of gold, but not a bestseller. He also added, Old man, take a look at yourself, you're a lot like me, not expecting a bestseller. He wouldn't shut up and continued stating, The drummer relaxes and waits between shows for the cinnamon girl and a bestseller. Upon exiting the room, slowly while keeping eye contact, he also stated, I've heard screaming and bullwebs cracking and how long, how long, ah, uh, bestseller. Now the New York Times bestsellers in fiction recap. Mitch Album is losing time with Timekeeper at number five. Lee Child's Wanted Man is slipping to number four. Serves him right. Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn remains in our hearts at number three. The second Second spot is kept warm by Winter of the World by Ken Follett, and of course, J.K. Rowling's first place with Chamber of Secrets. This has been Book News. I'm Skip Papersley, signing off. Okay, we all know I love Skip Papersley, and I love Book News, but I think he took it to an, a, <laughs> a new level this time, uh, singing that, singing the Neil Young songs. That was fantastic. I noticed he's, he's really been picking up on the comedy a little bit over the last few, so... Uh... Great stuff there from Skip. Yeah. <laughs> and can we read can we read the book he said was number one instead? Oh, uh yeah, Chamber oh, it was Chamber of Secrets. Yeah, I'm not reading another J.K. Rowling book. I was I, you would love it. Oh god, I'm, I'm, to... sh- I'm sure well, and compared to this. Yeah. Christ. <laughs> so, this episode is late because of this book, not because of us, because of the book. Yeah. It's true. But we're done with the book. We're moving on. <sighs> yes, we are. Moving on. Other books. Let's talk about some other books. Uh, recently released by Snubnose Press, uh, Richard Thomas has a collection of sorts out called Herdiated Roots. Wanted to point that out. Uh, it's available for uh, a modest two ninety nine. You can pick it up at Amazon. Um, you can stop by Richard's house. I'm sure he'd hand you a copy. Um, but yeah, <laughs> check it out. Some shorts from Richard. Yeah, I, you know, I think I'm going to once I you know get caught up with uh, after this week with this horrible reading experience we had a uh, that. It's not very long. I think I may knock that out over a few uh, a few lunch times. It'd be nice to read some Richard Thomas shorts on lunch. Yeah, it's better than seeing Richard Thomas in shorts. Wouldn't know, sir. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> um, speaking though of shorts, um, Lawrence Kitts, friend of this show, has some poems up at Thunderdome. That's right. So you'll know Lawrence Kitts from uh, Slitcher Wrists, which is the e-zine that he runs, uh, or maybe because he is the person who uh, created the booked podcast listening group. If you're only a fan of the show and nothing else in the world, um, That's right. 
but yeah, head over to Thunderdome. Thunderdome Magazine is a website that we've talked about pretty much consistently forever, run by Michael Paul Gonzalez, and looks like Lawrence has some poetry up over there. So you should check it out. Very cool. All right, so that's all the good stuff we uh, we have for this week. We have uh, some more uh, somber stuff to talk about a little bit. Um, obviously, because of the timing of our episodes, we're a little late on this, but uh, author Tom Piccarelli went in for brain surgery um, earlier this week. And the reason we mention it is we want to mention a couple of the great um, fundraisers that are that are going on um, in support of his recovery. Indiegogo fundraiser, I believe this was set up. I'm not sure if it was his niece or his nephew. The person refers to Tom as their uncle. Uh, a fundraiser, which is a lot like Kickstarter, if you're not familiar for, with it. Basically, you can go on and just uh, donate. And uh, 100% of the donations are just going right to Tom Piccarelli's um, uh, recovery fund. Other things that are going on, I just want to say that the literary community, at least uh, from what I've seen, has really rallied to support him. Um, he, Tom Piccarelli has been on our radar a little bit. I know uh, Nick Corpon mentioned him in our interview for Warmed and Bound a long time ago, so uh, he's definitely been someone that people that have been on Booked have been aware of and been a fan of for a long time, and so we've seen in the social media arena, just a swell of support for Tom and, and from publishers too. So his book, Every Shallow Cut, was published on Cheezine, which we recently realized is the right way to pronounce that. And uh, right now, in, in order to help him, to help fund his, his um, treatment, they're giving 100% of the proceeds from the sale of Every Shallow Cut directly to Tom. They're not taking any money out of that, anything beyond you know, what it takes to make it is going right to Tom. So that's one way you can help contribute to his, his, you know, treatment is just buy his books. And Warren Lapine, I think I'm pronouncing that right, is uh, also donating and they're doing a two, 200% of the proceeds from the anthology, fantastic stories of the imagination to, to help Tom as well. So um, a good cause. Um, I have not, um, read any Tom Piccarelli. I will say this though, Rob was saying he's on our radar and in the back of my mind, I was thinking for probably about, um, 10 years, I've been wanting to read a lower deep for years and years and years and haven't gotten around to it. So I think I may be picking that up as a, as a part of our, uh, you know, my donation to the Tom Piccarelli fund. One other way, Crossroads Press is actually also a publisher who has put out some of Tom's work and they're giving all the profits from, Tom's books to him to help uh, fund his uh, treatment as well. So you've got four distinct ways that you can go help Tom Piccarelli. You can go directly to that Indiegogo fundraiser and then just give as much as you want. Um, Crossroads Press, their books, the profits are going to him. Same with Cheesing and then uh, that Warren Lapine, 200%. So he's matching the proceeds and giving that money to Tom. So we definitely recommend anything you can do to reach out and, and help out. Yes. So go do that. Buy some books. Donate some money. All right. Um, do you know what we're reading next week, Rob? I do know what we're reading next week. I actually started reading it today. You did? Well, look at you getting uh, getting ahead of the game. I guess because you're used to reading long, you know, for long periods of time. Did you feel a little bit of withdrawal? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a little well, bit. go ahead. You talk all about it then, Mr. I've already started the book. <sighs> well... I had to get that, you know, I had to cleanse the palate, get the taste out of my mouth of the J.K. Rowling thing. Um, and and easy, way easy with this next book we're reading, uh, which is uh, which is The Last Final Girl by Stephen Graham Jones. Um, Stephen, we've had on the show from Warner Bound. 
We read Zombie Bake Off and reviewed it with David James Keaton, and we've talked about the dude a lot. And now we're going to, because it's October, booked-tober, we're going to start in with the slasher stuff, the uh, the horror, horror books, slasher books, all that kind of stuff, and uh, kicking it off with Stephen Graham Jones. It's all horror. Looking forward to this one. Me too. I'm looking forward to it because I'm already 22 pages into it. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a, that's a good portion. It's a short book. So, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was funny because yeah, the, the, the running joke, and we're probably going to put this up on that other, the booked bonus uh, WordPress site. Um, Livius and I, because we were struggling so much getting through this JK Rowling book, would just kind of send updates to each other about where we were and how difficult it was and how boring the book was. And so I just wanted to get a taste of how this book was going to kick off, you know? And before I knew it, I was 15 pages into it. I was like, man, this is definitely going to be nice because not only is it 300 pages shorter than the book we just read, but it's so much easier to get into and read. All I know is that I hope that whoever, I I don't know anything about the book, but I know it's kind of like a slasher. I'm hoping that slasher goes to Pagford and wipes out everybody (laughs) in that town and then goes to J.K. Rowling's house. That's my hope. That's how you can write a five-star book. Mr. Jones, get on that. Hey, can I talk about a milestone? Yes. Hit a milestone today for 2012. Um, My standing goal for for reading every year is 10,000 pages. I stopped reading. I stopped doing a goal by books because um, if you read 1Q84, that's 1,000 pages. If you read Herniated Roots by Richard Thomas, that's like 120. So... It's just a bad guide to go by, so 10,000 pages was my rule, and by finishing the J.K. Rowling book, I'm at 10,095 pages for the year. Oh, and Livius is slow clapping me. I'm slow <laughs> clapping you, buddy. Um, <laughs> that means Livius is probably at 13,000 pages. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I yeah, I only count in five thousand dollar or five thousand dollars. Jeez, I only count in five thousand page increments now. And five thousand um, dollar, you just show yes, your yeah, hand. I know, I know. Hey, listen, can we talk about another milestone? Yeah. Uh, by the time people are listening to this, it will be or will have already been Rob's birthday. Uh, see, I wasn't going to bring that up. No, that's what I'm here for. Yeah. I brought it up. So, happy birthday, buddy! Thank you. So um, remember, send all your birthday wishes to uh, either book down the Facebook page or um, write to Rob's personal phone number, which I'm going to give you right now. I'm not going to give out your phone number. <laughs> um, you could do it in Romanian. And I then could. If, It'd be like a... If you yeah. did it in Romanian and people did the work, I would let them call me because that would totally be worth it. You'd let them call you just because you want people to call you. Because it wouldn't be me calling you. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. All right, so we hit some milestones, 10,000 pages and 34 years being alive. That outdoes Christ, doesn't it? I beat Jesus. <laughs> but, I mean, he kind of lived forever <laughs> afterwards, I think. He did die, but he came back, so. It's like he was taking oh, a break, really. Yeah, yeah, all right, they're done. Hey, we'll be <laughs> Jesus back. Jesus had a three-day weekend, basically. Is, all right. Oh, God, we're going right now. <laughs> we'll be back soon with our Stephen Graham Jones review for The Last Final Girl. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Keep reading.